This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week live at NJIT here in Newark, New Jersey. Much more to come from here, but also a big, big deal that we've got to talk about. Man, I saw this and I wasn't surprised because there's been so much consolidation, uh, certainly in the money management area, uh, that, you know, move to be bigger, right? And we keep seeing it. So Morgan Stanley uh, diving deeper specifically into retail, buying E-Trade. It was a $13 billion deal. So, uh, yeah, this certainly got our, our attention. Right. Shanali Basak caught up yes. with James Gorman, CEO of Morgan Stanley, to get his thoughts. We're going to hear from her and from him later on. And we're also going to hear about um, the aftermath of last night's Democratic debate. Heated. You could use a lot of words. Sparks flying. Uh, So we're going to get into that. uh, It was a bloodbath, (laughs) I think, uh, is one way I've heard it described. We're going to do that. And then uh, back here, we're going to have the president, our host, uh, join us, talk about what's going on in the world of higher education, also the future of work. That's sort of the theme that we're going to be uh, going for today. President of NJIT, CEO of Top Coder, and also the key executives, or some key executives, I should say, at No Nokia, Siemens, and Merck. And yes, you're right, Jason. It's all about focusing on science, innovation, entrepreneurship when it comes to startups, industry, and then what does it mean for workers out there? So looking forward to that. All right. Let's set the Business Week agenda in the meantime. A lot to talk about in the markets today. We talked about the deals, and you also heard the numbers from Charlie Pellet on the trade. Gina Martin-Adams there in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. She, of course, is the chief equity strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. And she's there with Dave Wilson, our stocks editor, the author of The Chart and Stock of the day. Uh, Gina, I want to start with you. What's the one thing investors are thinking most about today as they try and assess what's going on in the markets? Uh, you know, I think a couple of issues have really come up over the last couple of weeks that are still weighing on investors' minds. The first is, is tech overbought? The mar- so much of the market's concentrated, gains have been concentrated in the tech sector, in particular the biggest stocks in the tech sector, you know, uh, Microsoft and Apple, now together worth more than the entire Russell 2000 combined, has some investors kind of running for the hills and a little scared of tech. The second thing right. I'm hearing about is kind of this underlying market condition where uh, low volatility stocks are actually still outperforming. You know, why is utilities the only sector that's outperforming with tech? Uh, in such a strong manner over the course of this year. And then lastly is, when are we going to buy the dip in energy? And this is what we focused a lot of our research on this week is kind of, you know, is the energy sector actually cheap? Uh, is it all about ESG? Where, what do the multiples say about energy? And can you dip into this extremely underloved space? Well, and I love what you said about energy. I saw that research, Gina, and you were kind enough to share it with us. But, you know, maybe that the energy sector isn't as cheap as valuations suggest, right? Just because something's cheap, maybe there's some really strong fundamental reasons behind it, yeah. which maybe means it isn't still a buy. <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, it's kind of fascinating, right? Because investors have pointed to valuation ratios being now nearly mm-hmm. a standard deviation below five-year average as one of the reasons why you want to look at the space as potentially deep value. But when you look at the ed- the energy sector's history, the counter-cyclicality of the P-E ratio for energy actually suggests that it's not cheap. And where you want to buy energy is when it's supposedly mm. expensive based upon valuation multiples. So that mm. argument just doesn't work as a catalyst. I think the other thing you want to watch is 
you know, frankly, even though energy looks relatively cheap in comparison to the rest of the index, it should be cheap with such a low ROE. So even if you exclude the countercyclicality of the earnings stream and you think about things like, what's the price to book for the energy space? Well, it's at about one and a half times earnings. Okay, that seems cheap relative to the S&P, which trades at a price to book closer to three and a half. But considering the low return on equity you get out of energy stocks, price to book should be one. So, it, right. you know, I just think you really want to dig into the data a little bit more carefully. Yeah, it's only 3.5% of the S&P 500. It's been on this slope of hope, just constant negative price performance. Mm -hmm. Eventually, it may bottom. But just saying the stocks are cheap probably isn't the catalyst you need. All right, slope of hope. I feel like that's a uh, band that uh, Dave Wilson probably has some vinyl from uh, that he's going to play <laughs> this weekend. Uh, Dave Wilson, come on in here. What are you seeing in the trade that you feel like should be top of mind? Well, really, it's kind of a takeover Thursday. You can put it that way. I mean, E-Trade very much front and center as far as that goes. Uh, you've got the requisite decline in the shares of Morgan Stanley in response to their deal. And then you look beyond that. I mean, you see Marathon Petroleum up 4%. Uh, we have people familiar with the matter telling us that there are now exclusive talks with the owner of the convenience store chain 7-Eleven about the uh, potential sale of the gas stations under the Speedway name for about $22 billion. So that's definitely proven to be a plus for that stock. And then there's L Brands, I mean, which is a fascinating kind of tale yeah. into itself. Yeah, I mean, selling Victoria's Secret, a 55% stake to the private equity firm Sycamore Partners, and valuing it at just $1.1 billion. I mean, this is a company that even today has about $6.5 billion in value. It just tells you how much things have kind of eroded at Victoria's Secret, at least in the minds of L Brands. So they make the deal and the stock falls, you know, which is really telling as well. So, you know, we've got the good and the bad. And then you can throw in, you know, the first earnings report out of Viacom CBS since their deal got done in December and the shares are down more than 17%. Those numbers for the fourth quarter. Yeah, worst performing well the S&P, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hey, Gina, what does it mean when you're seeing still, you know, deal flow happening, right? M&A activity. Mm -hmm. I always try to, you know, balance that out with what we're seeing in kind of market activity. Does it say where we are in this market cycle? Does it tell us about the health of the market? What does it say to you? You know, I think that uh, M&A continuing is a combination of very, very low rates, which allow access to capital, plenty of cash still sitting on corporate balance sheets, and an intensely competitive environment where companies are finding it more difficult to grow organically and looking for an opportunity to buy growth, to tack on growth, to find some higher growth areas of business simply because the economic environment is very slow. It's not indicative necessarily of, what, of where equity prices are going to head. It usually tends, m and mm. usually tends to improve as the cycle progresses and peak at the peak of the cycle. But, you know, as we all know, predicting when the peak of that uh, equity market cycle is, is notoriously difficult. So I just say it's a reflection of the competitive landscape, slow growth and very, very easy access to capital more than anything else. All right. Our thanks to both of you, Dave Wilson, Stocks Editor for Bloomberg. You'll be back with us at the bottom of the three o'clock hour to talk about your chart of the day. Our thanks too to Gina Martin-Adams, Chief Equity Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Way down among Brazilians, coffee beans grow by the billions. So we are going to talk about coffee. Probably take it for granted. Just assume it's going to be there. But there's a lot that goes into it. And this story that's in Bloomberg Business Week is about uh, crop software that's actually behind that daily cup of coffee. Let's get into the story. Jillian Goodman is an editor at Bloomberg Green. She joins us along with Jim Alley, who's deputy editor at Bloomberg Business Week. Both of them back in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Love this story. 
story, fascinating story. Um, Jim, let's start with you. Uh, I don't know. How did the story come to you? I think it was came directly from Amanda, um, Amanda Little, the writer of the piece. She, um, mm-hmm. she published a book last year called The Fate of Food, I think The Future of Food. And so she's done a lot yeah, of... Yeah, of course. Yes, so she's done a lot of uh, reporting and writing about these things that are trying to envision, okay, you know, all of the variables that are affecting our global food supply, be it, you know, climate change or trade pressures and whatnot, you know, how is that going to change the way we eat? Or drink. And so or why drink. coffee? why is coffee so interesting uh, to you guys, Jillian? So coffee is actually a really finicky crop, or at least the the kind of coffee that uh, that goes for a higher price that producers need to sell to make a living. Um, it grows only in a very particular region and requires very particular conditions. And it's not the kind of thing where, you know, if that region suddenly becomes inhospitable, they can just move. Really, the only place they can move is higher up these mountains with the, that have the soil that these things grow in. And so eventually they will just run out of dirt. These are the kind of stories I love that Business Week does, right? Because who knew this was going on? Uh, Jim, come on in on this, because it's actually a software company, right, that is helping out some of these growers. Yeah, I mean, one of the, you asked what was so appealing about the story. One of the things that really attracted me about it was the, it's it's an incredibly complicated system. I mean, it's a simple outcome, having a cup of coffee, but... It's it's just uh, what was it? The coffee bean t- changes hands like six times. Something that like that. Yeah. It's preposterously yeah. complex. Yeah, it's really really complicated. <laughs> and I love stories that that show that that basically provide some clarity and, and a little bit of simplicity on, on something that's complicated. Well, and Jim, it's funny, you know, reading this, like even just reading sort of the top of it, it takes me back to like the days when you and I first worked together at eCompany Now, right? It's like, oh, there's this cool <laughs> company called Cropster. And like back in those days, it would have been this like overly simple thing where you're like, okay, yeah, like cool name. But this is, as you say, like really complicated. This feels like a really good use of software because it does, to your point, sort of break down this very uh, complex thing. How does this fit into the sort of broader tech landscape that I feel like you know really well? It's coffee as a platform. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it's... it's uh, right. No, I think, I think well basically... Well played. Well played, Ailey. <laughs> it's taking... Uh, they're basically doing the full stack, you know, from the... From the, yeah. from the beans themselves, the plants themselves, all the way up to the roasters. Well, that's one of the other really interesting things about this company is that it started on the coffee producer side to try and help them, you know, make money from their beans. But where they've really found their revenue is on the roaster side. They've also developed this software that helps roasters really uh, on a granular level control the, the roast of their beans, which is why suddenly your neighborhood coffee shop is roasting their own beans where, you know, it used to be that they couldn't have the capability also in this case i think it's it, but it's it, not oh, oh go, go, ahead, ahead. go ahead go ahead no 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 please oh i was going to say the the it, the technology also in some ways is it could end up as a kind of an equalizer basically shift some of the power back to the growers themselves Very much which so. i which i think is well, interesting and important well and you know really important too is global food supplies right and it's not just maybe 
perhaps with Cropstar, you know, um, it's not just about coffee, guys, right? Uh, Jim or, or Jillian, either of you can take this. I mean, it's, it's about maybe helping too. out the global, global chocolate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and eventually, or staples, I mean, right? He he really has a global vision for this because you know what's happening in the coffee belt, where the the climate is a little more finicky. It's it's not just there; it's happening all over the world. And so eventually, you know, producers will need to uh, adapt and will need to find new markets for their product and, and and on the other side people will need to find new growers you know one other thing that an, another thing that really fascinated me about this is it's kind of the software has sort of become a secret ingredient for pretty much everybody at a certain level of the industry mm-hmm. i mean every roaster uses yeah. this. i had no idea and huh. I, I love pieces that reveal something about how the world really works mm-hmm. so what does the software actually do like how does it operate what does it do for for a grower so for a grower, it allows them to, well, it, it also encourages them to track certain data points about their crop that uh, roasters are going to be looking for. So historically, this has all been very low tech. I think we have a quote in the piece, someone talking about how people didn't even measure the moisture content of the beans when they were deciding, okay, are these ready to be shipped out? They just took a bite. You know, there, there were no sensors involved. And, and that's the kind of thing that will, uh, that allows you to try charge more for your product. And so it's everything from, you know, the moisture content to the beans, to the content of the soil, uh, to how long have they dried before uh, they go out to roasters. And all of that just allows them to make a better sales pitch. Well, the other thing we point out, which I feel like anyone who's listening and watching will will really recognize is this notion of sort of the waves of coffee. And, and Amanda does a great job of describing, you know, first wave of big brand. That's the Maxwell House and Folgers. The second wave, Starbucks and Pete's. And then, you know, this third wave that we're really in the midst of. And it, it plays much broader. And, and Jim, I know you uh, and Jillian both see this, you know, this idea of a, a boutique uh, sort of culture where we really care about where it's coming from. We want to know a lot more transparently about what we're eating and wearing and all of those different things. Right. It's also coming at a time, right, where climate change is threatening, yeah. you know, so many different crops around the world, right? And so, you know, potentially, Jillian, this could be something that could help with that. Absolutely. Well, and to Jim's point, a lot of the that, the really expensive coffee, it the those proceeds don't go back to the growers. They go back to all of those six people right. in the supply mm-hmm. chain. Yeah, yeah, it's a really good point. Well, it's a great story. Thank you both uh, for joining us. Jillian Goodman is an editor over at Bloomberg Green. She was in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio alongside the great Jim Ailey, deputy editor of Bloomberg Business Week, who uh, I know loved the fact that I referenced back to e-company. Now that's where he and I first met. It was a startup magazine back in the day. Love these old journalists. Way back when. Ailey will back me up on this. Best startup party ever. Uh, Pac Bell Park, the bare naked ladies played. Oh, God. Come on, it was the best. <laughs> and that was. Yeah. You were it there. Was you still have the hat. You still have the hat. Bare yeah. naked oh ladies. God, I still have the. Funny. I don't have the free Palm Pilots that we handed out, oh, but, I, but I, I do have the hat. I have <laughs> the baseball yeah, yeah. It Palm was, Pilots. Yeah. 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 After it was quite oh, yeah. I still have a picture of me at home plate. Anyway. All right. Uh, All right. Uh, Appreciate it, uh, Jim Alley and Jillian Goodman. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly 
on Bloomberg Radio. Some deal news, though, today. Morgan Stanley agreeing to buy discount brokerage E-Trade Financial, a $13 billion deal, really pushing further into the retail market. Its biggest acquisition for Morgan Stanley since the financial crisis. Uh, earlier, our Shanali Basak caught up with Jim Gorman, uh, of, uh, chairman and CEO of Morgan Stanley. Here's what he had to say. I've always felt that E-Trade was an incredible brand, an incredible company, had great technology. We're clearly doing stuff on the digital side at a pace that was ahead of where we were. So we had that constant debate of sort of build versus buy. And, you know, we felt we're in the condition to make a bold move and we went for it. James Gorman, of course, the chairman and CEO. Of <laughs> Sometimes you call him Jim. Jimbo. I didn't know where that came from. J-Dog. Yeah, and we've talked with him, spent some time with yeah. him. Shanali Basak also spent some time with him. Of course, she did the interview this morning. I'm calling him Jim. I don't know where it came from, <laughs> Shanali. She's Wall Street reporter at Bloomberg News. She's back in her interactive broker studio. I'm blaming the cold medicine today. Um, so this was a big deal. We're seeing, we continue to see consolidation within this industry. Huge, huge, huge. You know, I asked him, was this the biggest day? Was this the biggest day of his life? He said, you know, it was this and Smith Barney back in 2009. Wow. And we have not seen a U.S. bank make a deal like this, as you know, since the financial crisis. Everyone on Wall Street is scratching their heads. Some of them see the rationale immediately, and some of them are still wondering whether this is the right thing. Yeah, so lay that out for us, Shanali. Like, why does it make sense and why are people, for, for those who say, yeah, good deal, what are they saying? And for those who are like, what? What are they saying? So on one hand, he wants to build a full-scale digital bank. For many years now, Morgan yeah. Stanley had a wealth manager with many trillions of dollars under management. However, what they weren't doing was making that into a full-scale bank. They weren't doing checkings and savings and a whole lot of lending. They wanted to do more lending, but now they have that opportunity. Now they're also going more downstream in terms of what their clientele looks like. They used to only manage wealthy and very, very very wealthy <laughs> individuals' money, and mm. now they are really trying to become Bank of America. <laughs> But for the people who right. are more yeah, and that and that's, oh, sorry. So well, I was just yeah. going to say let let let's go down that road for a second. I mean that that really struck me too is that like this is trying to be more like B of A than say Goldman, right? So this is that that is the one thing. Is this an offensive or is it a defensive deal? Because you do have Goldman yeah. Sachs that also wants to be a big wealth manager, a big consumer bank. So you can do that yourself by doing a partnership with Apple, for example, or right. you can Marcus, do et cetera. $13 yeah. billion dollar deal. So Mike Mayo of Wells Fargo called the deal value destroying saying that with an estimated wow. $3.1 billion stock premium, you're only going to get $1.6 billion of savings. So financially it doesn't make sense. It's destroyed a lot of value when you look at Morgan Stanley's stock today because investors, I mean, I know it's been a lower market overall, but investors certainly weighing in and they're not happy. So what is it going to be key? I always think in a deal like this, when there's so much skepticism out there, Shanali, what will be kind of, I don't know if Mike laid out some metrics that he wants to see as a result of this combination in six months or a year. What do we have to see to know that it's working? Well, this is the thing. Morgan Stanley even told you it's going to take some time. Morgan Stanley said it'll take three years mm. before this deal is accretive, which is why on the face of it, immediately, it's really hard to say, hey, I love this deal. It also, they said they were right. wanting to stick to their buybacks, but this is a very expensive deal. So uh, over the longer term, over the next couple of years, how much money can they return to shareholders, even if this deal makes a lot of sense? 
I love uh, Sri Natarajan, sorry, our colleague uh, that's trending uh, so high on uh, the most read list right now, Shanali, where uh, he talks about, you know, Morgan Stanley betting E-Trade will dodge the Dean Witter jokes. That's harsh. Um, you know, and and the, I'm just going to read the lead. Morgan Stanley's merger a quarter century ago with a brokerage that had branches in Sears was met with sneers. Wall Streeters joked it was a deal combining white shoes with white socks. I mean, I mean that's kind of amazing. Uh, in a way, right? Do you remember they used to call it stocks and socks because they would try to sell yeah. stocks mm-hmm. in Sears branches? Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. it didn't really work that well, did it? And so, will it work this time around? I remember just a couple months ago, I was sitting at a lunch with a former Morgan Stanley investment banker, one of the top bankers in the world, and he started joking. He goes, "You know what makes Morgan Stanley so successful?" And I say, "What?" And he goes, "The stockbrokers." He goes, "All of those people around America that are peddling <laughs> stocks," and you know. That yeah. That is a tough one because you remember when Morgan Stanley, if you think about it, it's also one of the world's top investment banks. Gorman right. said he owns a pair of jeans. He's not worried about the culture clash. But is that true? Well, let's see how that plays out. <sighs> but, but I mean, we know E-Trade had to do something, right? Because of the TD, yeah. Ameritrade, and Schwab hookup. So we knew E-Trade was on the hunt. Uh, but it's just interesting that Morgan, Morgan Stanley was the one who did it. And, you know, what does that mean for now others? What does this mean for interactive brokers? What does this mm. mean for Robinhood? Mm-hmm. I think it could become a real problem because you see Wall Street playing this dating game and matching up very quickly, and there are other firms that you start to question, does this business model work? The thing we didn't talk about about E-Trade was the fact that fees are going to zero. And so Morgan Stanley does yeah. get scale. They have a $3 trillion asset manager now compared to $2.6 trillion at UBS. So that's great. How do you make money off of those clients? That's the question. Right. Yeah, and those are very different kind of uh, asset managers, as you know far better than we do. All right, Shanali Basik, thank you so much. Great interview with uh, James Morgan. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it's time for the drive to the close. Marky Patel back with us, Senior Portfolio Manager for Wells Fargo Asset Management. They look after more than half a trillion dollars, $509 billion, give or take. She joins us on the phone from Boston. All right, Margie, we were feeling pretty good about this market the last day or two when here comes a little bit of a bearish feel. What are people thinking out there? What are you thinking? Well, I'm thinking this is just another one of those minor little fades that we have that never follows through into a correction. Uh, we hit the market was down a lot more this morning. It's already come back. And when you think about all the negative news out of China, it really telegraphs the fact the market has tremendous underlying support and really wants to go higher from here. I do wonder at some point, obviously, we're going to get through, you know, hopefully sooner rather than later, the coronavirus, right? And we'll have uh, a stop to it and we'll know kind of the final cost. I do wonder when you start to take that out, when you look at the fundamentals that are out there, Margie, is it a good environment for the equity markets? 
Well, I think it's okay. It's good enough with interest rates continuing to be at these very low levels, 1% to 2%. And I think that's a good enough backdrop. The Fed is committed to liquidity to make equities outperform um, the fixed income classes, particularly treasuries. And this was really, I'd say, a pretty mediocre earnings seasons after all. So we didn't see mm-hmm. much of a negative correction from that. And so what do you make of earnings going forward into the next quarter of 2020, 2020, excuse me, um, you know, especially given maybe some of that backdrop of the virus and that's starting to play through even, you know, the likes of Apple and, and other big names? I think the market will look and differentiate and say which of those names have a temporary hit because of the China virus and will bounce back going forward. And what's important to me is the fact we had the uh, pretty much globally monetary authorities have eased over the last year, and it'll take a quarter or two for that easing to flow through into better economic growth. So we may be pretty much near the near the bottom rate in economic growth, trying to take in a little downtick, and maybe we may see somewhat better growth in the second half of the year. So that, again, that would support equity prices up from here. What's interesting, you, like another guest that we had earlier in the week, I think it was Henley Smith, who talked about um, believing that many investors are still underinvested in the equity markets. I think Henley specifically talking about cash on the sidelines. Yeah. What's out there that tells you that there's cash on the sidelines? Well, I think not only is there cash on the sidelines, but there are billions of dollars, I'd say, trapped in low, vol- low volatility strategy as a reaction to the financial crisis in 08 that is still poised there waiting for the big correction to jump in. Big correction has never come. This money is gradually going to be flowing out of those low volatility, low return sectors into the equity market. And I think that's what's really providing the floor while we don't really see any big equity correction, even when we get bad news. And so what sort of sectors become appealing in this type of market, uh, Margie? Low interest rates and, you know, maybe a s- slower earnings growth and all the things that you described. Where do you put your money? Well, we're still sticking with what looks like secular growing areas. So that is technology, healthcare, and uh, certain parts of the industrials market. We also think the utility sector will continue to be at least an average performer, which is pretty good because they should have mid-single-digit earnings growth plus dividend yield. So we think that if we are looking at, say, a 8 10% type of total return for the year, those sectors will all be very competitive. Well, and it's, I, I do wonder, though, then in this environment – um, what's the mix, you know, or how much do you want to kind of throw in cash at this point? I mean, what's what's the portfolio mix that you're looking at right now? Well, we're pretty fully invested. And as I said, I wouldn't be surprised mm-hmm. to see some of the cash on the sidelines come in because returns are so low, but also these other parts of the financial markets that, that have really prospectively very low rates of return, finally throwing in the towel and allocating more money into, I think, U.S. equities, because I think the U.S. market still has the best fundamentals globally. So I think we'll still see money domestically, plus foreign money come into the U.S. equity market. Margie, how soon in 2020 do you start to make decisions based on the political climate? Well, I think we have to uh, sort of round the bend on mid-year and see who the candidates will be from the two major Mm -hmm. parties. And uh, I'm not uh, 
putting any money yet on the elections either way until we have a much clearer picture. I may even wait until we see the election and see where that really leaves us as far as uh, as, uh, what the opinions are towards government action that will affect financial markets. All right. We're going to leave it on that note. Margie, thank you so much for your time today. Margie Patel, she's Senior Portfolio Manager at Wells Fargo Asset Management, $509 billion in assets under management, and joining us on the phone from Boston. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.